I'm Alec Lace. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Welcome, everybody. Episode 502 of the podcast. I am happy, as always, to be here with you. Thank you for stopping by. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please get over there and bang that subscribe button. You do not want to miss all the action coming your way right here on First Class Fatherhood. All right, dads, I got an awesome guest for you guys today. Michael Knowles is the host of the Michael Knowles Show on the Daily Wire. He is also the host of the book club at Prager U and The Verdict with Ted Cruz. Michael is a regular on Fox News and on other major networks as well. He is a graduate of Yale University, and he has been lecturing at colleges and universities around the world. He's got a brand new book out available now called Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, which really dives into this whole politically correct world that we found ourselves living in today and how we got to this point. Now, Michael is a fairly new dad with a five-and-a-half-month-old son, so I always love it when I have the opportunity to speak with new dads. Michael Knowles will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Michael Knowles was recorded on video and is available for you guys to watch on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch today's conversation, please subscribe to First Class Fatherhood on YouTube. The link is in the description of today's podcast episode. All right, and if you guys enjoyed today's interview with Michael Knowles, you'll probably really enjoy my interview with Andrew Claven, also of The Daily Wire. You may also enjoy my interviews with Dinesh D'Souza, who joined me on the podcast, along with his daughter, Danielle D'Souza. There are quite a number of other conservative dads who have joined me here on the podcast, including Eric Trump, Mike Lindell, Senator Josh Hawley, and most recently, Jack Posobiec. All these interviews are available for you to listen to at your convenience in the archives of the podcast. Make sure you guys are following me on Instagram, at Alec underscore Lace, for all the upcoming guest announcements, including next week. I'll be joined here by an NBA player who was a first-round pick of the NBA draft. So find out who that is and so many others. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit me with that rating or review. And as always, please help me spread the word about the podcast. Every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list, let them know about the show to see us celebrating fatherhood and family life. Fatherhood rocks, family values rule, and every day is Father's Day right here with me. And I'm going to be right back with Michael Knowles. I'm Alec Lace, and you're listening to First Class Fatherhood. All right, dads, my pillow has got so much more to offer than just the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. But don't just take my word for it. Here's my wife to tell you her favorite product from my pillow. Honey, what is it? Well, I love all the my pillow products, from the robe to the towels. But my absolute favorite, hands down product, is the my pillow mattress topper on our king size bed. I have the best sleep since owning that topper. It's like sleeping at a spa resort, and I can't wait to sleep on it tonight. And I look forward to seeing you there tonight. And let me tell you something right now, guys. Happy wife, happy life. And this mattress topper has been a game changer for me. That's a guarantee. And speaking of guarantees, all my pillow products come with a 60-day money-back guarantee. So what are you waiting for? First Class Fatherhood listeners can now save up to 66% off. That's right, up to 66% off your order using my promo code FATHERHOOD. Visit MyPillow.com and use the promo code FATHERHOOD to save up to 66% off or use the 800 number. That's 1-800-875-0219, 1-800-875-0219, and your savings will be applied instantly. Visit MyPillow.com, use the promo code FATHERHOOD, and save up to 66% off your order at MyPillow. Uh, Joining me now, First Class Father, Michael Knowles. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you. All right, let's start right here. How many kids do you have? How old? So, well, to quote Telemachus in uh, The Odyssey, it's a wise man who knows his own father. But I think, I think I've got one kid. Uh, my, my first son was born uh, five and a half months ago by an act of either providence or cosmic sadism. My baby was due into the world 
actually on the same day that my book was due to the publisher and my kid did not give me even one day's grace period. He came right on time and uh, both, uh, both I'm glad were, were turned in on time and uh, the kid I realized probably the greater blessing. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, congratulations. Did you guys do like a uh, any kind of gender reveal to find out what you were having or did you guys wait till the end to find out? Well, you're not allowed to reveal that for about 18 years now, I think. You're supposed to wait until at least the end of high school. Uh, we we did find out. We didn't we didn't do a sort of elaborate party, but I just the the nurse, you know, told us when when uh, we were on the ultrasound and uh, he's a boy and he's he's a a very smart boy because he decided to look exactly like his mother. The absolute spitting image, and oh no, he's just—it it was funny actually. I mean, I mentioned that I was kind of finishing up the book in the delivery room because I'd really thought I, I had poured my heart and soul for the previous 18 months into this book, speechless, controlling words, controlling minds, and I—I I finish it and I'm done. Then I look over at that kid and I realize, as much as I love my book, that book doesn't matter at all compared to this kid. <laughs> this is like the actual thing, you know. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I, ha- I have a copy of the book, Speechless. We're going to hit on that in just a minute here. Uh, if you could, Michael, please just take a minute to hit my listeners with a little bit about your background and what you do. Oh, sure. So I'm very excited I, you know, to have my first son. I'm looking forward to hopefully having at least a dozen more. I don't know. I might have started too late for that, but hopefully, hopefully a bit more. Um, I have a show at The Daily Wire called The Michael Knowles Show. I host a show at PragerU called The Book Club. And I host a show with Senator Cruz called Verdict with Ted Cruz. Um, so that's my professional life. Uh, but as an author, I this is actually my second book, uh, but it's my first book with words. My my first book was called Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide. And uh, I put it out. It's a completely blank book. It's got a very extensive bibliography, though. And I, I put it out there basically as just a joke to irritate my Democrat friends and relatives. And I had no idea that people would actually buy it. It ended up becoming the number one bestseller on Amazon for about a week and a half. Uh, President Trump saw me discussing it on TV one time and he was watching and then he endorsed it. He said it was a great book for your reading enjoyment. So I think I may be the only, I think I'm the only host in history to get a show for not writing a book. And I'm, I'm certainly, I'm almost positive, the only author in history to get a book deal uh, based on have, having published a, a stack of blank pages. So I'm very, very grateful for all that that uh, uh, grace that came down on me. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought all the authors knocking out word after word trying to get their uh, manuscripts sold and it's the book with no words in it that makes it to the top. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, well, you're five months into the game here, Michael, as, as far as fatherhood is concerned. So far, how has fatherhood having a child, how has that changed your perspective on life? It, well, I mentioned the first thing that it did is, like a lot of men, I focus on my job much more than on personal life. And, you know, women tend to be a little more nurturing and a little more interested in the personal life and men kind of just work, work, work. So I was doing that. And then I, when I saw my son, I just realized that the, basically the entire universe revolves around uh, a mother having a child. And then, and then basically everything we do is kind of about that. So that really put things into perspective. It, it also, uh, you know, the, the accountability of it all is really a wonderful thing because you realize that everything you do, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, you've got to radically change your lifestyle I and mean, hopefully you've gotten your life in order before the kid comes, but you realize everything you say, everything you do, this kid is going to be soaking it up like a sponge. And so you, you've really got to focus in every moment of your life 
on, uh, you know, living virtuously and, and putting forth an example that you would want your son to see. And then uh, the other thing it does is it, it really makes you so much more aware of time, uh, you know, especially if you're working long hours or if you have to travel for work or something. Uh, you you realize that those precious moments that you have with your your son, even even in the morning, you know, if I've got to work late because, for instance, I'm going on a book tour, I'm not going to be able to see my son when I get home from work. He's going to already be asleep. And so you're going to have to set that alarm a little bit earlier if you want to see your kid before you leave for work. And of, of course you do, because it's sort of the highlight of of your day. Uh, that's that's very important. And then I got some advice from my friend Andrew Claven which before I, uh, before my son arrived and he, he said, um, you know, are you worried about anything? I said, well, I realize now, you know, I've, I've got to make more money. I've got to, I'm not, you know, you don't want to make your life all about money, but now you've got this kid to provide for. You got to make sure you put food on the table. You got to make sure he can have opportunities. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. People are always worried that kids are going to, going to force you to have less money, but kids are little money bags. And, and what he meant by that is you just feel so much more uh, motivation to go out there and, and really work hard and be able to provide because no longer is it just about you and your wife being able to go to a nice dinner on Friday night. Now it's really about setting this kid up for success and, and giving him not only the opportunities that you had, but hopefully many more opportunities than you yourself had growing up. Yeah, great stuff, Michael. Yeah, and I've had Andrew on the podcast here, a first-class father all the way for sure. And you mentioned there too how the kids, they're, they're watching your every move and they're absorbing. So what would you consider to be uh, the top values that you're hoping to instill uh, in your son growing up? Well, I think it's, it's very important to get all the way down to the foundation. You know, you, it, when you're raising it, when you are being raised and when you're raising a kid, you want to give them a solid foundation because eventually they're going to do whatever they want and you're not going to be able to say anything about it. So the hope is that you, you set them up with a good foundation that will guide them in life. And uh, Andrew Breitbart, the patron saint of Hollywood conservatives, very famously said politics is downstream of culture. And there's a lot of truth to that. It's not the whole story, but surely you have to take that further and say culture is downstream of religion. Cult and culture come from the same root word. Uh, what a culture worships will define that culture. And, and ultimately, all of our political questions, even our inter, interpersonal questions, have a religious foundation. Cardinal Manning famously said, all human conflict is ultimately theological. And so I'm a, I'm a Catholic revert. We don't say a convert because I, when I was a little kid, I was baptized, but I then reverted to the faith. And so I want to make sure that my kid, and not just that he, you know, has a lot of toys and not just that he knows how to, how to you know, spell words and do his numbers, but I want to make sure that he understands values and I want to make sure he understands the root of those values so that when his values are challenged, he can explain why these things are true. In in, uh, the first epistle of Peter, he says that you have to always be able to give an account of the faith that lives within you. So I'm really trying to focus to make sure that I'm taking my faith seriously uh, and that I am instilling that in my son. Obviously, we're not even at the goo goo gaga stage yet, so he's not writing Catholic apologetics books. But but you want to make sure that he he understands uh, the the reality as it is, and you know it certainly as we see it, and then hopefully we can give an explanation to him. Because there are a lot of people who are, who are trying to sell really upside down worldviews, and you want to make sure that that he doesn't become a victim of that when when he's older, because he lacks a strong foundation. 
Yeah, and then tapping into that, Michael. I mean, I think it's. I have four kids myself. My oldest is fifteen. I have two teenagers. Uh, you know, they're just about to get into it as far as the next level of education, which is a little scary too right now with what's going on and how you say people are trying to sell these ideas. I want my kids to be able to debate the issues of the day. But you're you're a guy that went through the college system. Now, uh, this obviously I've had Dinesh D'Souza on. He came on with his daughter. They both went to Dartmouth University and had different experiences from the time periods they went. And mm-hmm. it was a major change in the in the culture on campus. So how, like, how about somebody like you? How were you able to go through college and come out a conservative and uh, mostly uh, Democratic or liberal leaning school? Like what, what was the What was that like for you? What was that experience? So, yes, the school is very, very far left wing. And so there, there are two ways you can go. Either you are seduced and, and brought into that dominant leftist culture, or you become a knuckle-dragging reactionary to the right of Attila the Hunt uh, because you're, you know, you're constantly surrounded by the arguments and the culture of the left. So in some ways, this is a real advantage because it forces you to really examine what you think and really be able to defend what you think. And in some cases, maybe you'll discard some views, but in other cases, maybe you'll double down and, and you'll, you'll be able to, to explain it at a granular level that I think a lot of people who are just kind of culturally left wing and it's just kind of in the air, it's, it's uh, the, the air that they breathe, they're not really going to be able to do that sort of thing. Uh, so there was a you know, handful of people who, who went through my college and they came out pretty conservative. Uh, and I'm glad that that happened for me. But, I, you know, the, the former dean of Yale College, Don Kagan, fam- a good conservative professor, one of the few left, he famously said that you did not need a liberal education to graduate from Yale. And then later on, he said, you might not even be able to get one. <laughs> it might be so far gone that you can't. And so uh, I, I hope that uh, for my son, his real education is happening long before he he gets to college. If he you know if he ends up even going to college, uh, I, I hope that that setup is there because I'm I'm a great defender of liberal education. The point of a liberal education is not to learn a trade or a job. It's to make sense of your freedom. It's to understand your your civilization, the great thoughts ever thought, to tamp down your base passions, and to encourage your your virtues. And now I think very often what what. Uh, supposes to be liberal education actually does exactly the opposite of that. Uh, but I, I really do want that for my son. I'm, I'm not anti-college in the sense that, uh, you know, I, I think he should just go get a job or something. I, I mean, even if he does go get a job, I, I still want him thinking about these things, cultivating himself, especially cultivating the virtues. But that's going to start a lot earlier than 18. Yeah, and it's one of the things that I'm concerned. I, I bring out a lot of you know high flying entrepreneurs on a podcast here that are just crushing it. And, and I always ask them, is college necessary to succeed in today's world? And many of them all say no. But it's still an experience that I would like to have my my kids to have. I just and, and either which way they go, it just seems like the whole thing is toxic now between liberals and conservatives. It seems like there's so much more hatred of the other person. So I would just rather whichever side my kids are going to be on in their life, I would hope that they just have love and respect for the other side. And it seems like so much of that has gone right out the window here in this political atmosphere. So um, I, I, it'll better you than me to be having to talk about it all day long, because sometimes it can drive you up a wall. But let, let me let me rein this back into you as a dad here. You got the five month old. What is the bedtime looking like for you guys? Have you settled into some kind of routine yet? Is it still uh, up all night? Are you reading them books, lullabying them? What does the bedtime routine look like? So one of the benefits of having a basically traditional view of the world and politics and, and family is 
my wife is bearing the burden of the midnight feedings. And, you know, I, I know these days we're told that I, I would be able to chest feed a baby, but I actually don't think I can. I think biology would get in the way. So uh, we have moved him out of the bassinet. Uh, you know, he's now he's in his crib and his crib is all the way at the other end of the house and upstairs. So it's a bit of a trek and it's really helpful to be able to minimize the number of feedings. R- really for my wife, I'm, I'm barely doing anything here. I just wake up to the shrieks because my, I think my son is going to be an opera singer. He's, he's checking out his, uh, his <laughs> lungs and he's working on his voice at night. Uh, we're down though to about, he's just waking up once in the middle of the night. Uh, sometimes a couple of times he's going down by seven o'clock. He's waking up Hopefully at seven o'clock, really it's more like six o'clock or 5.30. And then uh, my wife will, uh, when she's decided that I have slept enough by seven o'clock, she will sort of thump my cute little baby down on my belly and uh, he will be my alarm clock in the morning. Uh, but we, we have you know, kind of struggled with this and there are all these various theories of sleep training. So if you've got any advice for me, please let me know and I'll pass it along to her. Yeah, you know, it doesn't really last that long, Michael. I know that's one of the big things is sleep deprivation in the beginning. But basically, when it happens with me, you got to just accept the fact that you're up. So you might as well put on a good movie that you enjoy, sit there with the kid. And, you know, if you have the frozen breast milk, you thaw it out, you you, you give one feeding to give your wife an extra chance. I remember early on with my first, I I tried while my wife was sleeping, I tried to put the baby on the breast, you know, to try to see if I could just get it going. But it it (laughs) didn't work out, you know, too well. Uh, let me ju- let's jump into the book here now. Speechless. Uh, I have a copy of the book right here. Obviously, it's your first book with words in it. What can you tell the listeners about it and what's been the reaction so far? So the book actually ties into your question about college campuses and if you would send your kid there. Donald Trump said when he was running in 2016, the biggest problem facing the country is political correctness. Not, not immigration, not uh, foreign wars, not trade, it, political correctness. And I think he was totally right. And we've been fighting political correctness for a long time. Not even just conservatives. There are a, a great number of liberals who also say, I really don't like PC. I mean, Bill Maher famously is a liberal, but he, he's anti-PC. And so it's this really amorphous term. People can't quite tell what it is. I didn't think that there was a really popular history written of it. So part of the book is just giving a history. What is political correctness? Does it go back 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? I think it goes back 100 years. And I lay that out and I've got about 100 pages of citations in here. So I don't want anybody to tell me that I'm making it up. Uh, you know, that that is kind of to, to lay out the phenomenon itself. But then there's this problem I realized with PC, which is we've fought against it for a long time. And it only seems to be getting worse. I was joking earlier about the chest feeding. I mean, now we're not even allowed to say that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. How on earth did we get this far? It seems to me that political correctness lays a trap for people, whereby either way you react to it, either of the two main ways you react to it, you actually end up advancing the purpose of political correctness. And so the two main ways I see are you got the squishy way, which is very simple. You just just go along with the new standards. When when the left tells you to call a man a woman, you call the man a woman. When the left tells you to say a baby's not a baby, you just you pretend he's not a baby. You use what all the new words and whatever. So obviously that advances political correctness because you're just giving in. But then there's this other way, which is you might say, okay, I'm not going to go along with the crazy new standards. I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm totally against censorship. I'm totally against cancel culture. And so I, you know, I, Basically, you end up abandoning standards altogether because you know, you're, you're such a defender of free speech in the abstract. And the problem is that strategy also advances political correctness 
because political correctness at its most basic level is just an attempt to destroy traditional standards. Many of the defenders of political correctness presented themselves as free speech crusaders in the 1960s. At the University of Berkeley, now probably the most hostile campus to free speech, you saw the birth of the free speech movement in the 1960s. But it's not really about free speech. I, I, I think the trap we've fallen for is we believe that political correctness is a battle between free speech on the one hand and censorship on the other. And it's not. It's, it's actually a battle of competing sets of standards. The traditional standards that we like are kind of American way of life and the anti-standard of the left that wants to criticize it. You hear a lot about critical race theory, critical theory, wants to criticize, wants to deconstruct, wants to debunk, wants to tear it all down. And I just think the only way we're going to defeat it is if we articulate a substantive moral vision, if we actually defend a standard, because the fact is free speech doesn't mean anything to people who have nothing to say. Yeah, wow. Very well said, Michael. And, and I, listen, I'm going to put a, a link in the description of today's podcast episode to the book so my listeners can get over there, tap the link and go check it out. And I think you're right. And one time, a lot of times I have to make the stipulation on this show where I talk about the fatherless crisis that we have going on in the country. We have so many kids growing up without a father or a father figure. And I always have to make that little, um, you know, I have to make a st- statement there that it's not to take away from the single moms that are out there. It's not a knock on them or the birthing persons, if you, however you may. But uh, it, it's, it's just, if you look at the statistics, it's having a devastating result on our society. That and uh, the fact that God's been removed from so much of our culture, I think those two things combined are really responsible for the majority of the problems that we're seeing in our country. If we could just bring those two things together, I think most of that stuff would just start to go away. Of course. Well, you see it in the culture so obviously in every single sitcom and every single cartoon If there is a dad, the dad is just a big, dumb oaf. He's completely incompetent. He can't do anything. And mom is is the only person who's keeping the family together. And part of this is because women tend to be the the audience for sitcoms. So I guess there's a little flattery going on. But, But I don't think it's just that. I don't think it's just savvy marketing. I don't think it's very savvy at all. I think it's part of a a broader cultural attack that recognizes that if you're gonna subvert our culture. You're, you're going to have to get rid of the family. The family is the bedrock political institution, and it's the, it's the natural political institution, right? And some people on the left and even on the right seem to believe that mankind were fundamentally just individuals. You know, we're f- sort of free-floating atoms. We pop out of nowhere, and we're just all about ourselves. And that's just not true. You're born into a family. You're born from a mother uh, with a father, one hopes. You'll be raised in this natural family unit, and that, that is going to shape your world. Uh, so the, the left, the radical left, has really tried to get rid of that. I, I go through, I mean, I, this is not a some crazy conspiracy theory. They write about this at great length, and, and I, I chronicle this in the book. Uh, but you, I think you saw it come to a culmination during the Obama administration. Uh, in 2012, this, this video has now been effectively scrubbed from the internet, but this was a major video put out by the Obama reelection campaign, and it was called The Life of Julia. And The Life of Julia was this, this uh, description of a hypothetical American who, who is named Julia, and she's born and then it tracks her at every step of her life. And it doesn't really talk about her family, and it never talks about her finding a husband, 
And then maybe at some point she decides that she's going to have a child, but it's just her own decision, just herself. And then eventually she dies. And the life of Julia is a description of all the government programs that are, are going to be available to her from cradle to grave. And what's so distressing about it is that in the Obama administration's life of Julia, the only serious relationship that this woman ever has in her life is with the government. <laughs> there's no husband, there's no family, there's no father. And, and so this attack on the father is not just a kind of curious, uh, glib, cultural attack that you see in, in sitcoms. It's a very important political movement to advance a cultural agenda that will really only be able to flourish uh, once that family is, is out of its way. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned Obama there. I remember before he got elected, I believe it was right as he was campaigning, he gave a Father's Day speech when he really addressed the issues of the fatherless crisis in the African-American community specifically, and never heard him really speak about that ever again since he went through it. And I know I had um, Secretary Mike Pompeo on the podcast here a couple of years ago, and he talked about how, just like you were saying there, how the nuclear family has been the foundation stone, basically, of every successful civilization throughout history. And I think that's why we're seeing this attack on it, especially we saw this through the Black Lives Matter movement. It was like right on their uh, their statement on their website was that they were against the Western nuclear family. So I think we're seeing that attack more and more, which is very discouraging to see. No matter what side you're on, I, I think that, you know, I think at the core of everything, we're trying to solve all these other social issues, Michael. But I think if we don't strengthen our family units, we're just going to be running around in circles. So, of course, uh, I mean, you know, you specifically point on the, the crisis of the black family. 70% of black kids are born out of wedlock. That is in and of itself an impediment to black success in America. It just, I mean, that it's sort of the end of the conversation. No government program, no social program, no educational program is going to do anything to help improve the collective lot of black America if 70% of kids are being born out of wedlock. And it's, and it's a problem that one is not permitted to address. It's considered politically incorrect to point this out, but uh, that, that is a, a problem. And, and uh, I know that now it's very fashionable to blame all of the problems in the world on white supremacy and systems of oppression and whatever other nonsense jargon the left wants to put out there. But, uh, you know, what, in order to improve one's lot in the world, and this is why we're talking about fatherhood, right? That's why we're talking about families. At a certain point, you've got to take a look in the mirror. That great political philosopher, Michael Jackson, famously said, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And I, I think the experience of fatherhood really puts this into stark relief because you realize, oh, it's on me. It's on, if someone breaks into the house, it's on me. If we can't pay our bills, it's on me. If this kid is is neglected or you know has you know serious problems it's on me to try to fix that and i can't rely on the government and i can't rely on some ngo or anything like that i've got to start with me and 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 because the buck stops with me I, you know i ultimately am going to be responsible yeah, and, and you know, I, I spoke to Michael Irvin at the Super Bowl last year. He hammered home that point, too, about the 70% uh, in the African-American. And if you look at the stats of, like, the fatherless households, it'll go African-American, uh, Spanish, white, Asian. And then if you look at the top earners in the country, it's Asian, white, Spanish, African-American. So every every stat that you seem to correlate, teenage pregnancies, teenage suicides, all the stats, they're all the same thing. If you see a neighborhood with high teenage crime, you'll see a neighborhood with a high fatherless household rate. And it just all correlates. 
You know, I, I just was going back through the, the origins of the Black Lives Matter movement, and you remember it really gained steam in Ferguson, Missouri, because of the killing of Michael Brown. And the, there was a lot of propaganda about how Michael Brown was killed, and you heard about hands up, don't shoot, and he was an innocent boy who was executed. And it turned out that wasn't true. He had just robbed a store, and they grabbed a cop's gun, and then in the ensuing conflict, the cop shot him, and it was this was backed up by people of all different races and grand juries and multiple autopsies. Uh, so some people then turned and said, well, this, this kid was just a criminal and that's the end of the story. And I think, no, obviously the cop did what he had to do and the cop was rightly acquitted. Uh, but this kid had a very bad upbringing. The mother of Michael Brown just, just wrote, recently wrote a memoir and the memoir is worth reading it because it, it gives you a glimpse into what went wrong. Michael Brown Sr. is now basically a race hustling extortion artist who is taking lots and lots of money, millions and millions of dollars, along with other race hustlers in, in a tandem with the Black Lives Matter movement. Michael Brown Sr., according to Michael Brown's mother's memoir, was a horrific abuser, a layabout, a bum, a degenerate who would not only beat Michael Brown Jr.'s mother in front of the poor little boy, but actually put a gun down her throat, so far down her throat that she started to choke when he threatened to kill her. How was this kid supposed to turn out any different? <laughs> you know, obviously people, people have free will, people overcome great obstacles, but that's a horrific impediment. And, and so much of the responsibility for what ultimately happened to his son lays with that absolutely degenerate father. And I'm, I'm assuming that the mother's uh, memoir is to be believed. Perhaps not, but in that case, then I suppose it's for them to sort out. Uh, th this is really awful stuff. And so you've, you've got to see fathers stepping up here. Even if you look at the issue of, of abortion, particularly in the black community, there was a statistic that came out some years ago that the majority of black babies in New York City were aborted. They weren't even born. The most dangerous place for a black person in New York was in his mother's womb. That was the really shocking headline that came out of that. And you think, obviously, that's a horrific evil, and, and we need to put a stop to that. It's an injustice in itself. Why were so many black women feeling impelled to, to go commit this horrific crime of abortion? One imagines it's because they didn't have a whole lot of support. One imagines uh, this wasn't because they were in stable families where, where the, the father was around and pleading. The, the, no, of course not. The, in most cases, you had, I keep going back to this word, degenerate men who were uh, totally abandoning their responsibilities. And so it's with the proliferation of this kind of degeneracy, it's no, no surprise that society itself is degenerating. You are just not going to have a stable, flourishing political system when, when aspects of the family are so broken. Mother Teresa very famously said in the 1990s in a speech at the UN that abortion was the greatest evil in the world. And people said, wait a second, you're there's genocide, there's war, there's this, that, and the other thing. Well, how is it abortion? And she said, if a, if a mother can kill her own child, there's nothing that we will not do. And so much of that is traced back to men not being able to step up, have some responsibility, and, and, and put, put their own basis desires and appetites aside for, for the, their higher rational will and for the good of, of their families and their children. Yeah, and it's definitely too, Michael. What'll happen is if they, these children don't have that father or father figure, they find it elsewhere, and they find it most of the time. They'll find it in the street, 
that's how they end up in these gangs. And I, I bring a lot of Navy SEALs, a lot of military guys on the show that grew up without dads, and they find that father figure in the military. And had they not done that, they could have easily have gone the other way. And so it, it's definitely that they're going to be seeking, especially young men are going to be seeking that father figure. And if they find it in the street, it always ends up in a disaster. I think we're seeing that all over the country right now. And that's why I'm, I harp on the fatherless crisis that we have. But I, I wanted to bring it back into you here now as a dad with five month with a five month old, you had your first child here during this pandemic or towards the tail end of the pandemic here. What was your experience like during that? Did you were you able to be in the room for the birth? Were you be able to, were you able to go to all the appointments? What was the experience like during the pandemic to have your first kid? So I was not allowed to go to all the appointments because we lived in California for most of the pregnancy. We then fled New Salini's failed state. We fled what we call Gomorrah by the sea there in Los Angeles. And we, we came to Tennessee to breathe the sweet air of freedom. And so my cute little baby was born in Tennessee. And here they were much more reasonable about the restrictions and they allowed the fathers to go into the appointments. And it was, it was really just so offensive what was going on in California a lot of the time. My wife was walking around our, our perfectly nice open neighborhood. You know, LA famously has great weather and lots of space. So my wife was walking around the neighborhood one time, about seven months pregnant, and she's not wearing a mask. I never really took the mask thing seriously. I, I did not care too much for the, uh, you know, uh, decrees of the exalted Dr. Fauci, the high pontiff of progressivism. I just didn't pay a lot of attention. But, but you know, if I had to, I'd put the mask on a store, on an airplane or whatever. Walking around our neighborhood on a sunny day in California, far and far away from anyone else, people walking down the street would tell my seventh month pregnant wife, put the mask on. At that moment, we said, this is so outrageous and offensive. We're getting out of here. And then uh, came to Tennessee and fortunately, we're able to really spend time. Uh, but I think it was very hard for people who were stuck in places like New York or California, which had onerous regulations. And by the way, it's not like they did any better on the death rate or the infection rate. I mean, New York was the worst state in the country for coronavirus. And m most of my family still lives back in New York. And, uh, you know, they're telling me from the ground, no matter how many, they could be wearing 10 masks at a time, locked up in their little cubicles, still the, the rates were really bad. And so it was just su such needless trouble for, for uh, pregnant women and, and for the fathers. Yeah, I, listen, the, the whole thing has been a psychological game, I think, from the beginning with the whole mess. I, I, I don't even know how to get into it. I mean, I know people that shoot heroin, ride motorcycles, all of a sudden they, they won't leave the house or drive without a mask. I'm like, what happened to you? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? So I don't know. I, that's, a, that's, that's a whole nother show. But uh, let me wrap this up here, Michael. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Andrew Clavin's advice to you before you became a dad. Normally, I love to ask all the dads that get on the podcast here, what type of advice do you have for that um, new dad or that about-to-be father who's out there listening. Well, I'll tell you my only advice because I'm obviously a very new father. And so I, uh, I, I don't have a ton of advice to give. Drew Clavin is, you know, about 400 years old at this point and has a lot of accumulated wisdom. <laughs> uh, one thing that has been really helpful though, actually, is having fairly clearly defined roles with, with my wife. I'm not saying I'm a knuckle dragger. I'm never going to change a diaper or anything like that, but just having it be clear that if, if we've only got such, you know, a limited amount of energy and resources, it's probably going to work out better if I'm focusing my energy in these particular ways and my wife's focusing in these particular ways. And when we each need a break, the, the other will help one another. Th that's been pretty helpful. Uh, and then the other advice, I guess this wouldn't be for new or expectant fathers. This would be for the, the guys who are not yet fathers, but it's advice I would have given to a younger self. 
get started earlier. Have kids. Do it earlier. Come on, man. <laughs> Birth rates are dropping. Everybody's putting off growing up and, and you know, having a family because you feel like you don't want to take on responsibility and it's going to be a terrible thing. This is, I guess, going back to Andrew Clavin. Drew, Drew told me life goes into three dimensions when you have a kid. It just, it's not even that it's always totally better or all it's totally worse. It's just bigger. It's just more life. And so I, I would encourage younger Michael out there somewhere in an alternate universe, have kids earlier, men, get ready, dig into life. And, uh, and uh, hopefully I'll have a few more though. So I won't have been too late. Yeah, very well said. I'm right there with you. I love the message. Uh, this has been an honor for me. Speechless, available now. Link is in the description of today's podcast episode. Michael Knowles, you're a first-class father all the way. And thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Back to wrap things up here on First Class Fatherhood. I got to give a special thank you once again to Michael Knowles for giving me a few minutes of his time here. That was so cool. Please hit me up on Twitter, guys. Or drop me that DM on Instagram. Let me know what you thought about today's episode. I always love to read your feedback. Once again, the link to his book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, is in the description of today's show notes or podcast notes, whatever you want to call it. It's down there in the description. Tap the link. Go check out the book. Uh, it's been a big week here on First Class Fatherhood. Thanks for joining me. We hit episode 500. I had the honor of being joined by Backstreet Boy Brian Littrell and his son Bailey for the 500th episode. If you missed out on that, go back and take a listen. I've been getting some great feedback on it. Uh, tune in next week. I've got many more episodes coming your way here as we climb up to 1,000 here on First Class Fatherhood. Follow me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace. That's all I got for you guys today. I am Alec Lace. You've been listening to First Class Fatherhood. And please remember, guys, we are not babysitters. We are fathers. And we're not just fathers. We are first class fathers. Your half truths and tales, as tall as the trees, and a soft feeling.